It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 176 for January 17th, recorded on January 15th, 2010, as the world slowly melts. Here's a question from a listener, and a good one, by the way. For some number of months, Rick says, I was receiving virtually no spam at all. About two months ago, the spam began increasing on a daily basis. Moreover, some of the spam is landing in the inbox instead of the spam box. Have new spammers come online recently? Also, I use AT&T Yahoo email. I noticed that the spam filter has a limit of 500 email addresses. Do you know of a spam blocker that I could use to add to this email service? Should I be looking at switching to another email service provider, one that is not necessarily free? The quick and easy answers are yes and yes. But I suspect you're going to want more than that. So here's the longer answer. What Rick is experiencing is the general ebb and flow of spam. New spammers enter the trade, so-called, every day. And although the average rat has more intelligence than the average spammer, some of the people who write the spamming programs are pretty sharp. The average spammer buys these programs hoping to make a fortune in the spam biz. Most of them don't. They just become annoyances, big annoyances. What happens is that the new techniques get past the Bayesian filters for a while, but eventually the filters catch up. During the time that the filters are learning, spam volume increases. The spam masters regularly add to their stable of compromised machines, so as a result, new spam sources aren't yet listed in the various blacklists that some ISPs use to block the sludge. I found that Wikipedia has a good explanation of the process, the Bayesian filter process. Particular words have particular probabilities of occurring in spam email and in legitimate email. For example, most email users will frequently encounter the word Viagra in spam email. You won't see that too often in other email. The filter doesn't know these probabilities in advance, and it has to be trained so that it can build them. To train the filter, the user manually indicates whether a new message is spam or not. For all words in each training email, the filter adjusts the probabilities that each word will appear in a spam or in a legitimate email in its database. Bayesian spam filters will typically have learned that there's a very high spam probability if the words Viagra or refinance show up in a message, but a very low spam probability for words seen only in legitimate email. It may be the names of friends and family members. After the filter is trained, the word probabilities, which are also known as likelihood functions, are used to compute the probability that an email with a particular set of words belongs in one category or the other. Each word in the email contributes to the email's spam probability. This contribution is called the posterior probability and is computed using Bayes' theorem. Then the email's spam probability is computed over all words in the email, and if the total exceeds a certain threshold, usually 95%, the filter marks the email as spam. I currently use SpamArrest, which costs about $50 a year, and I put it in front of my mailbox. SpamArrest has a whitelist that I provided. 
a list of addresses that I always want to receive messages from, regardless of what's in them. I have also provided a smaller list of addresses that I never want to receive mail from. Whitelisted messages are forwarded to me without delay. Blacklisted messages are discarded without question. Now, what happens to the messages in the middle, ones that aren't either whitelisted or blacklisted? Those messages, typically coming from people I don't know, go into a quarantine area. The sender receives a challenge message. If the challenge message is undeliverable, then the received message is placed in a special area that I won't see unless I ask to see it, and it'll be deleted after 30 days. The other messages are sent to an unverified area, one that I do look at several times a day. A quick glance at subject lines is enough to tell me whether the message is spam or not. So the usual process involves a quick glance, checking select all, and then clicking delete. When I receive a message from a new legitimate correspondent, I can approve the message. This sends it to my inbox, and it adds the sender to my whitelist. As good as this sounds, there is a drawback. Some people are terribly offended by challenge messages, and I can understand why. This is probably the last year that I'll be using SpamArrest because the company that hosts my domain, Bluehost, offers PostInny for $12 per year per email account. I've tested this on my wife's account, and it has proved to be surprisingly accurate following a relatively short training period. That short training period is about two to three weeks. Increasingly, larger Internet service providers and some of the smaller providers are adding PostInny, which, by the way, is a Google service, either as an included service or an extra cost add-on. In either case, this is what I would recommend if you're looking for a better way to control spam. To see if I could help, Rick, I spent some time digging through various SBC, Yahoo, and AT&T web pages. And after about 20 minutes, I concluded that they really don't want you to know very much about the services. They may offer PostInny, but there's certainly nothing that clearly states so one way or the other. It might be worth a call to SBC. With luck, you will be connected to a technician who actually knows something. I estimate the probability of this at about 10%. I have dealt with SBC support several times for clients, and only once have I encountered someone who actually understood the question I was asking. And the questions I've asked have never been particularly difficult, so good luck with that. This next section is an unfinished story, a work in progress, rather like something written by Virginia Woolf. I'm telling it now because it illustrates the frustrations of trying to find the right application or applications to protect your computer's data. For a lot of years, I used AVG antivirus. It was a light user of system resources, but version 9, released late in 2009, had begun to remind me of Norton antivirus, the application that AVG had replaced. I removed AVG, and then I installed, over the next few months, several antivirus products. Some were free, others were free trials. Shopping for an antivirus program these days isn't easy. The one that I have currently installed is only on the machine on a trial basis at the moment. So it's important that you understand the limitations of this report. Specifically, I assume that most antivirus products from the well-known providers, Symantec, AVG, Kaspersky, Avast, Avira, McAfee, and the like, I assume that all of these will generally catch most threats. 
Any particular application can, of course, miss a new threat, and any particular application can raise a false alarm or send out a bad update. Over the years, this has generally proved to be an accurate assumption. Some providers offer free versions in addition to their paid versions. In general, the free versions have shown themselves to be competent and reliable, missing only a few features such as an improved interface that comes with the paid version or some of the high-end protective features. Nearly all of the providers offer at least a 30-day free trial, and it's a good idea to take them up on that offer. But always... Always remove one antivirus program before installing another. Two antivirus programs are definitely not better than one. Each will get in the other's way. Each will think the other is a virus. So what I'm sharing with you now is what I looked at, what I thought about at the time, and what I've more or less concluded. Your conclusions may differ because your requirements are different from mine. For that reason, I am omitting any kind of cat ratings for these applications. I tried a vast antivirus. It looked promising, but it came with several annoyances. Whenever it interacted with Microsoft Outlook, it popped up a notice to tell me what it was doing. I found out how to turn that off eventually, but it should have been turned off by default. It also announces in a rather loud voice that it has updated the virus database. You can turn that off too, but it should have been off by default. Beyond that, the interface seems to have been designed to look like a CD player. It was just too cute. Next, I tried Avira. It's a German application. I tried the free version. The download and installation went just fine, but then I couldn't get it to update the database. It would start, and then it would just sit there. In reviewing the Avira website support section, I saw the problem wasn't unusual, but the support staff suggested trying a manual update and clear instructions were provided. For some people, that eliminated the problem, but not for others. It did work for me, but I decided Avira wasn't what I was looking for. Then I got all excited about G-Data. G-Data Total Care, it looked really good. But I have to warn you, don't do this. It's another German application. It includes an anti-spam filter that I really like. My initial attempts to download program updates failed, though. The application told me that I needed administrator rights to perform an update. Well, I have administrator rights, but the program apparently must be run as the administrator, not an administrator, the administrator. This is something that will escape many users' understandings of how Windows works. When I selected the program from the start menu, right-clicked it, and then selected Run as Administrator, I was able to obtain the update. But this really isn't acceptable. Future updates arrived without a problem. I'm not a big fan of scanning the entire computer, but the application seemed to want to do that. So I approved the process, and it ran for nearly 18 hours. I have to admit that the computer I use for testing has a lot of disk space. Currently, it's in excess of 2.5 terabytes. And that these disks contain a lot of files. GData told me there were 1.8 million of them. I thought G-Data was going to be successful, though, and there's a lot of information about it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So let's start at the beginning and look at this one as kind of a general case of how I've looked at antivirus programs. It was a standard installation. G-Data asks more questions and offers more options than many other programs. Generally, I don't care for these multi-purpose protective programs, 
but I decided to evaluate the full application and to enable most of the functions to see just how much this would degrade system performance. I agreed to allow the program to report malware to G-Data. For scheduling, I requested an hourly update for virus definitions, but I declined the weekly scans of the computer, and I didn't select the backup option because I already have a reasonably well-structured backup system in place. Once the installation was complete, I started a scan. The system scan and rootkit scan took only a few minutes, but I knew the system scan would take longer. I wasn't prepared for how much longer. Eventually, I canceled the scan so that I could finish the installation by updating the program. Updates require registering the computer with a G-Data server. Ostensibly, this is so that the server will know what versions of the components your computer is running. In fact, this is probably a method to keep a user from buying a single license and using the application on more than one computer. A little honesty would have been helpful here. The definitions update concluded normally, but I noticed that the application itself had not been updated. When I tried to obtain that update, I was told that I needed to have administrator rights. And of course, I do have administrator rights. Eventually, I tried running the GData control panel from the start menu as the administrator. That worked. So trying to put off the system scan for a while, I took a look at the email log and was impressed by what I found. GData had correctly identified and marked most spam. There was a single false positive, and correcting that entry seemed intuitive. By default, GData marks only messages it suspects before delivering them. I couldn't put off the inevitable scan any longer, and I thought it would take, oh, perhaps three to five hours. The system and rootkit scans completed quickly again. Then GData moved on to scan the drives, C, D, G, H, Y, and Z. As the scan continued, I looked at my email accounts and was again impressed by the out-of-box accuracy that this program brought. But GData seemed to be using a lot of system resources. Later, I found that the default setting is for the scan to get relatively more resources so that it will run faster. The user can change that. During the process, disk access was high, one drive was saturated most of the time, and sometimes two drives were saturated. That means the device was running at 100% capacity, and when this happens, the computer can do nothing else. The disk saturation is not entirely the fault of G-Data, though. Either a hardware conflict or a Windows misconfiguration causes process ID 4, which belongs to Windows, to consume enormous disk resources. I've seen this problem on this computer with Windows XP, Windows Vista, and now with Windows 7. It has proved to be a problem with an elusive solution. So I can't blame G-Data for this problem entirely. It was only a contributor. After the scan had run for an hour, G-Data predicted the process would continue for another 23 hours. Well, the scan didn't really take that long. It finished overnight while I was sleeping. In the morning, I found that it had identified several files. Some had been incorrectly accused, though. There were some genuinely infected files on my computer. I had received some bad email attachments, and I had retained them for future examination. It concerned me a bit that G-Data had identified the entire email data file that contained thousands of messages, but I had full access to the rest of the file nonetheless. Only the bad files were off-limit, so that turned out to be okay. Then there was a configuration file that belongs to a program. I was not allowed to open or move the file, 
and there seemed to be no simple way to remove it from G-Data's clutches. Later, I did figure out how to do this, but it wasn't really intuitive. And then there was a file that was identified as being dangerous, and I understand why, but I don't want it to be. It's a utility written by Steve Gibson to test certain firewall shortcomings. So yes, it was nominally dangerous, but how do I get it out of G-Data's clutches? G-Data needs to provide additional information here. It told me I could repair the file, move it to quarantine, or delete it. I didn't want to do any of those. In this case, I wanted to tell G-Data the file is not a threat. I know what it is. There is a way to do this, but again, it's not immediately obvious. And then the troubles began. Retrieving email is something I do frequently. Although G-Data does a really good job of marking and classifying spam, I decided that the feature wasn't worth the cost. Prior to installing the application, I could retrieve email in 30 to 60 seconds. After installing G-Data, downloading email consumed 3 to 10 minutes. Totally unacceptable. Well, at that point, I decided it was maybe time to reassess just exactly what I need. Magazines tend to rate programs from best to worst. Which products are at the top of the list? Which are at the bottom of the list? And does it really matter? If you look at the results from the major reviewers, you'll see that the worst antivirus programs probably received a score of 80 to 85. And the best antivirus programs received a score of 90 to 95. I would interpret this to mean that the best programs would find at most 95 infections out of 100, and the worst would find at least 80 infections out of 100. So the question is, how significant is this difference? And that led me to another question. How many infections have I had on the computer? Well, in the past 10 years, uh, zero? I've had perhaps 10 or so antivirus alerts in the past 10 years or so, but not one has been for a problem that the wetware between my ears would not have caught on its own. I believe in antivirus programs for the same reason I believe in words, spelling, and grammar checkers. I might miss something that the automated process will catch. That might suggest to you that I believe the difference between 80% and 95% isn't terribly important. Well, to some extent, that's true. Actually, I believe the difference is meaningless. What's important is this. It's important that you find an antivirus program that stays out of the way, enough that you won't disable it. When I decided that AVG Professional, the paid version, was getting in my way too much, I removed it. And in the past several weeks, I've looked at a vast, which seemed more like a comic book than a computer application, a Vira, which annoyed me with frequent full-screen advertisements, and G-Data Total Care, which ran for a couple of weeks in test mode on my desktop system. When I removed G-Data from the desktop system, I was required to restart the computer. And when I logged on, I got a temporary desktop. Windows 7 said that was because some important files had been deleted. It would be okay, the message suggested, if I just restarted the computer again. I did, and this time I was told that my copy of Windows wasn't legal, that I had to activate it. The activation was accepted, and my familiar desktop returned. But this could cause a lot of distress for users. For that reason, I have to recommend avoiding G-Data. I'm not trying to be argumentative or to suggest that anyone else has made the wrong decision by selecting some other antivirus program. 
I'm simply explaining my criteria for making the decisions I've made. Computer security is a lot like airline security. You can enable basic protection and depend on your own intelligence to thwart the bad guys. Or you can inconvenience yourself with procedures that make the system all but unusable and put your faith in window dressing. Well, that brought me back to AVG, the free version. I installed the free version of AVG on the desktop, but it seemed to come with all of the resource-hogging features that the paid version had, at least for the first 30 days. So, once again, I removed AVG from the computer. Although I might like to use an open-source antivirus application, such as ClamWin, I'm concerned that it offers no real-time scanning capability. So, I ruled that out. And then I tried PC Tools antivirus. At first, I thought I had a winner here, but wow, that turned out not to be the case. PC Tools is an antique name. It's been around the computer biz for a long, long time. But today's PC Tools is not the PC Tools of the past. Fortunately, the current owners of the name do seem at least to have an attitude about utilities that suggest the applications should protect the user but stay out of the way. I installed it, and initially my frustration seemed to be ended. You know, there's an irony here. I stopped using Norton Antivirus several years ago because it caused so many performance problems. Back in the days of DOS computers, PC Tools and Norton Utilities were big competitors. More than a year ago, Symantec acquired PC Tools from its Australian owners. And yes, you are right, Symantec also owns Norton Antivirus. At the time of the acquisition, Symantec said that PC Tools would continue to be an independent business unit under the management of its Australian management team. So far, it seems that they've kept that promise. Next, I upgraded to a trial version of PC Tools Internet Security, an application that includes a lot of features that I don't really consider essential. But system performance seemed not to be too severely degraded. Collecting email took a little bit longer than it would without the email monitor, but unlike G-Data, the additional time was measured in seconds instead of minutes. I was beginning to think I could recommend PC tools, but when I decided to test Bitdefender on the desktop machine, removing the PC tools product corrupted the registry. These things can happen, and I considered it to be little more than a fluke. But then I decided to try Bitdefender on the notebook, too, and after I uninstalled PC Tools, the notebook crashed on startup. In that case, the Windows 7 repair utility resolved the problem. Now, I grant you this. Two machines is too small a sample to really be meaningful. But when uninstalling an application causes a catastrophic system failure on 100% of the two computers tested, well, I can't recommend it. Even worse, when I installed another antivirus program on the computer, it displayed some extremely odd characteristics. Thanks to the Bitdefender support team, we found parts of PC tools were still installed. The Windows uninstaller couldn't uninstall PC tools because the application had already been partially uninstalled. So I manually edited the registry to remove all references to PC tools from the software section. Then I found a PC tools directory and tried to delete it. Some of the files were still in use, so I needed to use a special utility to delete them on reboot. 
Once PC Tools was gone from the notebook computer, Bitdefender operated as expected. I was beginning to wonder if I'd ever find anything I might like. A security-minded acquaintance has been hammering Bitdefender for a long time, so I decided to give it a try. It hasn't been on the computer long enough for me to decide for sure, but it is promising, despite a couple of stumbles by Bitdefender's support. I'll tell you more about it in a few weeks. But for now, the basics. Bitdefender has what I consider to be a three bears interface. Too little, too much, and just right. Actually, I've been using the too much interface, and I do like it. Users can tell the application how much control they want, and this ranges from very little, Bitdefender makes all the important decisions, to total control, the user makes all the decisions. In the middle, the user gets to make the important decisions. I am not yet ready to say that Bitdefender is the right solution for me or for anybody else, but it's certainly promising at this time. Give me a month or so, and I'll give you a more complete report. All is not perfect in Bitdefender land. When I tried to install the application on the notebook computer, it blocked all Internet access, which made it impossible for me to activate the trial version. That meant the trial version didn't work, which meant that I could never activate the trial version, which meant I could never have access to the Internet. Does this seem a bit circular to you? Well, I can assure you it didn't amuse me very much, and I muttered a number of epithets in the direction of Bitdefender as I figured out what was going on. It really shouldn't be this difficult. If you have a network connection, there is a reasonably high expectation that you might want to be connected to the Internet. Applications such as Bitdefender should protect you from bad things, but they shouldn't make it impossible for you to do what you want to do. So I removed Bitdefender from the notebook computer and rebooted and tried again. This time, Bitdefender showed me a dialog box that allowed me to specify that the wireless and wired connections were trusted. Both registration and the required update failed, and although I supposedly had Internet access through both wired and wireless connections, the Internet access was blocked in both cases. I was becoming somewhat less in love. And then I turned off the firewall and found that I could register. With the firewall deactivated, I do still want a firewall. I tried the Zone Alarm free firewall for a few days, but it was so intrusive, and it blocked home group access among the various machines I have on the home network, that I decided maybe the right solution as far as firewalls go is the Microsoft Firewall. Starting with Vista, Microsoft's Firewall is actually pretty good. Right now I'm still using Bitdefender for everything else. So stay tuned. I'll be back in a few weeks with an update. In short circuits, oh no, disconnected. How important is the Internet to you? I was reminded on Thursday, January 14th, just how important it is to me. When I arrived at home from the office, I logged onto my account on the computer and noticed that all of my Internet applications indicated no connection. I called Wide Open West, and I got an intercept recording that said, in essence, yep, we know. I waited, and then I waited some more. Four hours later, I called Wide Open West. This time I bypassed the intercept message and reached a real person. I was told that it was believed to be a fiber issue and that there was no ETA for resumption of service. No big deal, right? Well, maybe. 
except that I'd planned to do some work on a script for the next edition of TechBiter Worldwide, and I needed the Internet to do some research. I wanted to confirm the dates when some computer CPUs were introduced. There was some work from the office I wanted to do, too, but that required connecting to my computer in the office. Without an Internet connection, I couldn't check my email, and I'm used to being able to check the forecast and the current temperature in several cities during the evening. Well, not that Thursday. At one time, in addition to the cable service, Wide Open West had a dial-up service that subscribers could use when they were traveling. I haven't had a list of those dial-up numbers for years. Besides that, my desktop system doesn't even have a modem in it. I could have used the notebook computer, it does have a modem, if I'd had a list of the numbers. But I suppose it's just as well. A modem connection would have just been frustrating. But a fiber issue? For most of this week, I've seen utility crews working nearby with what was clearly fiber gear. That puzzled me, because the neighborhood had been wired for fiber several years ago. Given the amount of fiber that was installed back then, I thought the companies involved in the project had installed plenty of fiber, but maybe not. The cable outage gave me the chance to watch three episodes from the first season of Perry Mason and a biography of Pete Seeger called The Power of Song, so maybe it wasn't such a bad evening after all. And by the next morning, most of the service had been restored. Many media pundits have not been kind to Google this week. The commentators have wondered how and when Google found its moral compass. They said that maybe Google has finally decided not to be evil. And those are just the positive comments. This could be interesting. Who is stronger, Google or China? Google was criticized for caving in and abiding by China's laws, rules, and regulations regarding Internet use. Now, because of activities possibly sponsored by the Chinese government to break into Gmail accounts of dissidents, Google is threatening to leave China. This would represent a large financial loss for Google. But would it be a corresponding gain for the dissidents? Many of them seem to think not. If Google pulls out of China, they say, it would be a big victory for the Chinese government and a big loss for the dissidents. Better, they say, for Google to stay in China and work for change from within. It's not unusual for perceptions to be wrong, and it seems to me that the general perceptions in this case are wrong. So, Google, if you want my vote, it's that you stay in China. The first personal computer central processing units were 4-bit devices, quickly followed by 8-bit and then 16-bit processors. After a few years, the world moved to 32-bit processors, and a few years after that, 64-bit processors were released. Except the world didn't follow the 64-bit leader, which, by the way, was AMD. Now, maybe it's time. Until now, I've stuck with 32-bit processors. But I'm planning to move to 64-bit Windows and 64-bit Linux in February. I'll do this even though I know that some applications I use won't work exactly right in a 64-bit environment. Remember the Beatles song, Will You Still Need Me? Will You Still Feed Me When I'm 64? The Beatles sang those words back in the 60s. It's been a long journey to 64, but we're now approaching. In 1971, Intel started selling the 4004. It was a 4-bit processor. They sold it to a Japanese calculator company. It's worth noting, though, at this point, that 64-bit CPUs have been around since the 1960s. 
That's right, the 1960s. The Beatles were still together when 64-bit processors were developed. Granted, they were available only in supercomputers back then, but they started showing up in RISC-based workstations and servers in the early 1990s. RISC stands for Reduced Instruction Set. It wasn't until 2003 that AMD released the first 64-bit CPU for personal computers. So where has 64-bit computing been for the past seven years? Let's go back for a moment to 1971, the 4004. It ran at 0.74 megahertz, contained the equivalent of 2,300 transistors. By 1975, Intel had released the 8008 CPU with 3,500 transistors, and the MITS Altair used it. This was the first commercially successful microprocessor kit. It was featured on the cover of Popular Electronics magazine in January 1975, and I wanted one. In 1974, Intel released the 8080 CPU, running at 2 megahertz, 6,000 transistors. This was during the brief zenith of 8-bit computing devices. But by 1978, the 8086 and 8088 processors, running at 4.77 megahertz with 6,000 transistors, were available. These are the processors that were used for the first IBM and compatible personal computers. They were nominally 16-bit processors, but there were some 8-bit choke points. Then came the 8186, the 8286, the 8386, the 8486, the Pentiums 1 through 4, the Core and the Core 2 products, all 32-bit. AMD 64 was announced in 1999, but didn't ship until 2003. It was called the Opteron. Intel, AMD, and Microsoft have always tried to maintain backward compatibility. This means that even antique 8-bit programs will run on 16-bit and 32-bit systems. That's not the case with 64-bit systems. Some of your older programs, if you're still using them, won't work. Some newer programs may have a few features that don't work. But the time has come to move on. Apple did this with the latest version of its operating system. My Apple systems cannot run the latest version of the operating system because it depends on features found only in Intel processors, not in the Motorola processors that power my systems but it was the right decision for Apple to make. My plans now are to convert to 64-bit systems in February, which puts me about five years behind the Vanguard. Stay tuned. I'll let you know how it goes. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.